Katie Kepner, and welcome to Perspective, which is a series of inspiring conversations with remarkable working women. And I certainly have a remarkable woman for us to talk with today, my guest, Melissa DeRosa. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. So there isn't going to be enough time to talk about everything I want to talk about, but maybe if we could just start, I mean, you've had such an incredible career journey so far. Can we please start just by hearing a little bit about it up until now? Sure. So I grew up um, with a love of government and politics since I was a kid. My father worked in government and in the labor union. And so I was somebody who was sort of a bizarre child, you know, reading four newspapers a day at 14 and watching Beat the Press. And at 16, I interned for the political director of the AFL-CIO, which is the biggest national union. Um, at 19, I was interning for Hillary Clinton in Washington. And then, you know, I did take one one brief waylay right after college. I worked as a fashion publicist for a year. It was sort of my moment of rebellion. <laughs> um, but then I went right back into government and politics. And I, I managed a few campaigns. I got a master's degree. Um, and then I worked for President Obama's political operation. I ran his New York political operation. And then from there, I was um, the first ever female chief of staff to the attorney general in New York. I was first his deputy chief of staff and then became chief of staff. And then I worked for Governor Cuomo. I was his communications director and then I was promoted to chief of staff. And then I became secretary to the governor, which is the the title set is a little confusing, but it's the highest unelected um, position in New York state government. It's a constitutional role. It's you're essentially you know, the right hand to the governor. It's akin to the White House chief of staff. Um, I was the first woman to be named in that position. I was 34 when I got that job. So and now I'm an author. Who knew? <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that's just so amazing. Well, you are an author, so let's please talk about that. Congratulations on your recently released book, What's Left Unsaid. Thank Why you. Why did you write the book? You know, I decided when we were within 24 hours of leaving office that I was going to write this book because the truth matters. And so much of what we lived through, both in 2020 through COVID and then 2021, when there was this, you know, sort of manufactured scandal that took out my administration, so much of what was being communicated to the public was done through the press, right? Oftentimes relying on people who aren't in the room, who aren't direct sources, who don't have direct knowledge. And I lived it. I lived it. I was in the room. I was there during COVID. I was making life and death decisions. I was screaming at Jared Kushner on the phone. I was standing in the room while the governor was, you know, going back and forth with President Trump. We were in the White House. So, you know, I felt like people deserve to hear particularly about that period in history, which was so consequential to so many of us in a way that, you know, we're never the same after COVID from somebody who lived it directly as a primary source. So I set out to write the book. That's amazing. I mean, let's talk about that time, you know, during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. New York governor at the time, Andrew Cuomo, he was really hailed for his leadership. I mean, he I remember we would tune in every day here in this house and people across the country, probably across the world, just to hear his daily briefings and hang, really hanging on his every word because that was what we were getting. We weren't getting it from the White House and and yep. from Trump. So what was it like to be there? You know, it was unlike anything I could ever imagine. And if I hadn't lived it, I'm not sure I would have believed it. 
you know, it was, we were in the state capital, like literally making it up as we went, you know, we were building the plane as we were flying it. The health officials from Fauci on down didn't know what was going on. Um, and we were getting very little to no guidance from them on when to shut down the economy, masks or no masks, what's an essential worker. And I sort of talk through a lot of this in the book in a way that I think really brings to life for people what was going on when the cameras weren't rolling. You know, this mad scramble at the beginning to try to buy ventilators, something as simple as that, because we believed at that point, the science was telling us ventilators could be the difference between life and death. And a ventilator, which would cost $5,000 at any other time, was causing $30,000, dollars $50,000. It was an international arms race. So it was just everything from building field hospitals and trying to get PPE to deciding, like I personally decided what an essential worker was, who was going to stay home versus who was going to leave their house and go out and potentially risk, you know, contracting the virus in order to keep, you know, the hospital system running. And so you know, it was it, the, the closest thing I can compare it to, I think, which I've never been on the front lines of, but based on history is it was sort of tantamount to wartime. And it was it was unlike anything I ever experienced or I ever thought that I would experience. And you can't overstate, you know, the human impact of that year and those months. That we're still feeling in so many different ways. Another question about, so maybe this is a, way too much of an oversimplification, but what struck you the most from that period of time? You know, there there's two things. Um, one was, as you noted at the beginning, you know, Andrew Cuomo really stepped in and became sort of the national de facto commander in chief. And it was, you know, it was this overwhelming sort of lack of leadership at the federal level where I'm someone who grew up believing in science and medicine and government. And when COVID hit, it was like, you know, the one time you need the federal government to function most, they were, they were nowhere to be found. And there was sort of this moment of recognition when we looked around the room at the governor and our senior staff and we're like, this is it. We're it. You know, it's, it's time. Step up. And the response we got to those briefings you know, the way that people hung on the governor's every word, just the thirst for facts and straight talk and knowledge and also empathy from somebody in charge. It was, you know, government mattered. In that moment, humanity mattered. We came together as a state. We came together as a country, you know, to beat back that virus, at least in those early months before it got completely politicized. And so I was just so struck by sort of the the need for the leadership and what that looked like on every level, not just giving the daily numbers, but, you know, when the governor would speak to the country as a father, as a son who worried about his mother, as a New Yorker, as an American who didn't know necessarily what was going to happen next. And the reaction that we got to that, you know, is really what struck me. And it, it's still, you know, I walk down the street in Manhattan and I get stopped by strangers saying, are you Melissa DeRosa? I remember you from those COVID press conferences. It's like, it was such a dark, traumatic period for all of us. I think, you know, in some ways we try to block it out, right? It wasn't that long ago, but I think in a lot of ways, we all try to block out that dark history. But then in a lot of ways, I think it's so ingrained in all of us that we sort of all experience this trauma together. And then it, that at that point, government mattered and that people came together. That's so true. Then to skip ahead in your book, yeah. 
you know, as much as people were revering what, you know, Andrew Cuomo's leadership, then you write also in the book about the Me Too scandal that brought an end to that. I mean, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, it was speaking of things unlike anything I ever experienced or thought I would live through. You know, it was sort of like the Icarus who flew too close to the sun. You you couldn't, you know, write a screenplay that sort of mapped out that trajectory in a more dramatic fashion. So 2020 is hailed as the international global, you know, hero. And then 2021, bam. And as a woman to experience being on the other side of a Me Too scandal, um, you know, I was in a position of power in 2017 when the Me Too movement came to the forefront after Harvey Weinstein was exposed. And I fought for and enacted, you know, the strongest sexual harassment laws in the country in New York, fought for and extended statute of limitations in New York on rape. And then, you know, to to be on the receiving end of the Me Too movement, and particularly as a woman who, you know, was second in command to Andrew Cuomo, who was coming under this firestorm. What was incredible to me was the way that it sort of turned on me, where because I said we should wait and try to figure out what this is and there should be due process, all of a sudden I became sort of the enemy of the Me Too ire, um, which was also an incredible experience to go through. But, you know, two years later, I think people look back on that period. And what's so incredible about it was all anyone ever heard was this number 11. There was 11 allegations. And what I've realized from people reading the book is no one ever even knew what the allegations were. No. And when I tick through them in the book and I go through them, one, two, three, four, you know, eight, nine of the 11 are a kiss on the cheek, putting your hand on a woman's waist for a photograph. He put his hands on a woman's face at a wedding after he officiated the wedding and he was literally walking around working the room and he put his hands on this woman's face. And all of a sudden that's on the front page of the New York Times. You know, this one woman complained. He said something to me in Italian. I didn't know what it meant, but I think he referenced my look. I mean, this was the level of a pure insanity that we were sort of living through. And it didn't matter because to question was to smear and you weren't allowed to question and you weren't allowed to belittle. And if a woman felt like it was inappropriate, it didn't matter. And it just became a number. And so it just became a numbers game. And so he was essentially run out of office. Our entire administration was taken out of office for what I believe was this manufactured Me Too scandal that was sort of a met the moment of politics. You know, the attorney general who was doing the investigation wanted to become governor. She ran for governor right after he resigned. And so it was really, you know, it feels to me like it was the weaponization of a very serious movement in Me Too for political purposes. And now fast forward two years later, smoke clears people look back on it with a more sober assessment and I think are very regretful of what happened. Yeah, it did seem like an enormous shame. And obviously that's I mean, that's an understatement to say the very least. But yeah, yeah. What do they say about hindsight anyway? You know, so yeah. it was a very interesting confluence of of events. You know, one of the things that really struck me in your book is how candid you've been about some of the personal challenges that you face. And I think it shows both vulnerability and resiliency. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. You know, look, I think we as women in particular sort of, and I I write about this in the book, you know, my father said to me from a very young age, if you're going to be in a male dominated industry, 
you know, you've got to run faster, jump higher and never let them see you sweat. It was like something he said to me as a child that I internalized, which is, you know, as women, we have to be better than everyone. We have to outdo everyone. We can never show cracks. We can never show imperfection. And, you know, looking back on my career and those last two years in particular, you know, and I write about this very honestly in the book, my marriage was falling apart. I was dealing with infertility issues. I was struggling with mental health impacts of dealing with COVID and of being in that position of making those life and death decisions and sort of the toll it took on me. And rather than confront it or speak honestly about it to my friends, my family, I just bottled it all up. And so one of the things that until frankly, it almost broke me. And so one of the things I decided when I was going to write this book is if I was going to tell the truth, and if I was going to tell the truth about what happened during during those two pivotal years, women in particular who pick up this book, you know, they needed to hear everything that was going on, not just the hardball politics, not just the pandemic, not just the scandal, not just the crisis and the bold-faced, you know, Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Bill Blasio, these people, but really what it was to be a woman at the helm in that moment and, you know, the private struggles that I was having. And my hope is that the more we talk about these things openly, the more we sort of normalize them and allow other women to feel like it's okay. You know, we don't have to be perfect all the time. In fact, none of us are. And the more open and honest we are about that, the more empowering it will be and to just be ourselves and to sort of acknowledge what we're all going through and support one another more. That's beautiful. And it's really true. And I think as women, especially this period of time in the world is incredibly difficult for anyone just to process, even if they're not going through any other kinds of trouble. But I think there's so much pressure on women in so many different ways. And it's, it's hard to be honest a lot of times, or even if you're a working woman, you, you're, you're afraid to be. So I think You know, you're a wonderful example. Obviously, you're a very high profile person, but at the same time, other people can can be inspired by that and be able to be more honest themselves. So that was wonderful. Well, and I think that, you know, at the end of the book, I, I talk about, you know, sort of getting back up off the mat and getting the courage and the strength to sort of come back after all of this. And I think that's a big lesson I internalized from it. And I hope everyone else does too. Look, in life, you never know. Like, you're going to deal with divorce. You're going to deal with infertility. You're going to deal with crisis. You're going to deal with scandal. You're going to deal with a pandemic. These are all just different gradations of the same kind of traumatic experience. And it's it's not what happens in those lowest moments. It's that you get back up and you keep going. And I hope that other women take away from my book that no matter how dark it is, there's always going to be a tomorrow and you can, you're stronger than you think you are. And you just have to pick yourself up and keep going and your best days are ahead. Yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I want to talk a little bit more about women now. I know you've been very influential in, in the space. You chaired the first ever New York State Council on Women and Girls. And when it was announced in 2017, you wrote an op-ed for Refinery29 And one of the things that you said in it is if you are a woman in the workplace like me, you don't need the state of affairs in Washington to tell you that misogyny is alive and well. So now, five years later, you would hope that with everything that has happened in the interim, that statement is less true. I personally don't happen to think it is. 
And I'm much more interested in knowing what you think about that. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, look, I still, you know, get treated in the media like, uh, you know, like my father, like daddy's little girl, regardless of how many glass ceilings I've broken. You know, my father is in the same business and I still get written about in the New York press through the lens of Giorgio DeRosa's daughter. You know, I see a lot. There's this woman, Rebecca Tracer, who's a writer for New York Magazine. You know, she did a piece at the height of the hysteria in 2021 where she was talking about the fact that I wore Christian Louboutins and would choose to wear dresses in the office sometimes. Like the misogyny that I think women get from men and from women has not gotten any better as a result of the Me Too movement, not even close. And I think that's also something we should all be honest with ourselves about and sort of take stock of where we are and what works and what doesn't work. And how do we, you know, actually get to a place where we're taking that down a notch across the board. And I, and to be honest, I don't have the answer. I don't, I can tell you what laws we should change. I can tell you we need more women in leadership positions. We need to continue to break down barriers. But, you know, I don't know how we remove misogyny from from the veneer through which we all sort of exist. Well, then my follow up question, which is also one of these enormous things, but I just would love your opinion, you know, based on your background and everything you've done. um, This is a very big question, but I'm curious to understand from your point of view. I mean, you've been right in the middle of the political world for a long time. You, you talked about all, in so many different ways. We are living in such a divided country on so many issues and now magnified so much by the Israeli war and everything feels very divided. Do you see a path, and I realize this is an enormous question, but just from your point of view, do you see a path that can bring people together over their shared humanity, which is something you had talked about in the beginning around um, the pandemic? You know, sadly, I feel like the, I think the only thing that can bring us together as a country at this point is another major crisis. And even that, I mean, just as you noted what's going on in Israel, you know, for a minute, I think everyone was sort of together. And then that fractured really quickly too, along Israel versus Palestinian lines. Um, and I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm really afraid in general that we're sort of on the precipice of going to a place of no return. Everyone, the, the partisanship has gotten so extreme. The anger is so real. You know, you go on social media and the algorithms actually reward hateful, angry speech. And so it like, you know, it gets more attention and, and I don't know how to go back. I mean, I don't know about you, but I you know, know a lot of people whose friendships have ended over whether or not you're a Donald Trump supporter. Like it used to be, we could be friends with people we disagreed with and we've just gotten to these extremes and I don't know how we come back now. You know, I think leadership matters. I think electing somebody who, you know, someone at the very top people believe in has moral authority, can bring people together, take the temperature down is one piece of it, but it's, it's something bigger than that. There's something going on in this country right now that sort of feels like we're we're at the point of no return. And I don't know how we put the genie back in the bottle. Absent another huge crisis like COVID, which sort of forced everybody together. And even that was temporary. Hopefully there is a way. Hopefully hope springs eternal. Not to, not to be a, such a downer, but. No, I mean, look, 
I unfortunately think you're right. What do I know? Um, so let's let's go to a more happy place. Yes. So yes. Now, now that you're the book is done, obviously you're you'll be promoting the book. You are promoting the book, but what else are you planning on focusing on now? You know, I haven't decided yet. One thing I really I I get asked this question all the time. I may run for office. You know, I look around and I'm really disapp- disappointed on every level with the state of government locally on the state level, on the federal level. And at a certain point, it's sort of like put up or shut up. So I'm I'm sort of teetering on that, you know, give up on it or go all in. <laughs> and I don't know, I, I'm, I may, I'm, I'm just, you know, maybe sick enough of human being that after everything I've gone through, I want to jump back into the frying pan. But I love writing. I do a column for the Daily Beast, which I took a little hiatus from when I was getting ready to put the book out. I do radio commentary, which I enjoy. I do consulting, which I find unfulfilling, but lucrative. <laughs> But uh, my true love has always been government and public service. So I think at some point I'm going to find my way back to that arena. I can tell. I can tell that that's your love and you're so good at it. So thank you. Is there one piece of advice just to end that has really helped you through your life and your career that you can share with us? Look, it's exactly what I said before. It, It doesn't matter what's going on you know, when things are good, it's, you see someone's true character when their cards are down when the chips are down and just knowing that you're stronger than you think you are and remembering that in those low moments, professionally, personally, and knowing that things are always the best is yet to come. And there were moments during COVID, there were moments after the administration went down that I wasn't sure I wanted to wake up the next day where I was so down. And so my mental health had deteriorated to a point where I really, you know, didn't know where I wanted to go. And I'm so happy and I'm so fulfilled and I couldn't be more thrilled with the book and taking control of my life and taking my story back. And, you know, you just have to have confidence that life goes on and resiliency is a real thing and, you know, just keep going. And I hope that if there's one message people take from this book, whether it's about my marriage or about COVID or about the aftermath of the, you know, the resignation that just keep going. Well, you're doing a phenomenal job at that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.